Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. All right. Okay. Uh, we were talking last time about representation, and, you know, um, this is clearly something. Is it someone bored sitting around a campfire scratching little X's into a rock, or is it actually meaningful? Perhaps people have said depicting the phases of the moon. Who knows? Um, This is from uh, Blombas, which is just fun to say. Blombas Cave in South Africa. Um, then we have things like cowrie shells that are clearly, um, you know, put a hole in them and you can string them on a string. It's clearly a nice necklace, but is it more than that? Does it represent perhaps age? you know, years? Or does it perhaps represent uh, other sorts of status uh, indicators or markers? Is that accounting notation? Who knows? It's hard to say. Could it be both? Yes. So the um, Blombos Cave in particular has a lot of these, uh, let's call them representational or quasi-representational scratchings. Um, and so yeah, there's some debate about whether or not they're supposed to be representative or not. Okay. What is unequivocal is that writing uh, first began about 5,000 years ago in the Middle East. And it started out very pictographic, clearly a graphical representation of an idea. In this case, a head, a leg, water, or a bird. Um, and then there was the great shift when they turned everything on its side. Why? I do not know. They didn't leave those sorts of indications. Um, and then they changed from using a pointed stick and drawing on a piece of clay to using the, uh, a wedge uh, to stamp wedge-shaped uh, little indications in the clay. And so they had to abstract the head. And they have the general form of the head, the neck, and the eyeball. Here's the foot, right? So they had to abstract that somehow. That's how they ended up doing it. And over time, it became more abstract and less um, obviously uh, pictographic, although they started out as pictographic. Not all writing systems um, were formed this way. I think one of the most exciting is uh, actually Korean, because Korean was commissioned by uh, the king, whose name I forget, uh, in I believe the 1400s, if I'm remembering that correctly. He said, we, don't, we shouldn't use Chinese, we're Korean, we should make, because before this everyone had been writing in Chinese. They said, let's make our own language. And he employed, I guess, what you'd call linguistic, or linguists at the time, although that wasn't really a formal study. And what they did was they approximated, and I do not know Korean, so if you know Korean, I'm making up characters that basically approximate. So Korean's easy to tell because among the Asian languages, it's one of the few with a circle. The circle represents your mouth, and then there's your tongue or your uh, there's different ways to show like your teeth and things like that. It's a graphical representation of what your mouth does when you talk, which is really cool. And I don't know of any other language that does that, um, or any other written system that does that. So it's still representative. But 
There's a change when we're talking about writing because writing can put over a concept very specifically like melancholy, right? Like I can write out the word melancholy and you'll all know exactly what phrase I'm thinking of. Whereas if I was using a picture to do it, it would be, you know, uh, what's that game? Pictionary? Okay, here we go. I'd be like trying to get you to say melancholy or maybe I would draw a melon with dots on it. And then I draw, oh, sorry, collie. That's supposed to be a collie, right? Melancholy, right? Get it? Okay. So <laughs> graphical representations aren't necessarily uh, able to convey everything that a writing system can. A full writing system can write down anything you can say. And sometimes we've gotten to the point where sometimes you only read words and you never say them out loud until you do in a public event and then you mispronounce them. And that's lots of fun. Uh, okay. Um, and b both of those sorts of things, like the melancholy, does happen in some languages where they use what's called the rebus principle. So, you know, like sounds like um, is certainly a form. You know, my mom, when I was a kid, and embarrassingly, even as an adult, uh, when I was a kid, she sent me little notes in, in my lunch, and now she sends me like birthday cards with these things where she's like, I, you know, Rebus principle. Um, you know, oh, oh, mom, oh, thanks, right? So, Rebus principle, that, these things are certainly, so this is Rebus because it sounds like I. This is logographic because the heart uh, means love, right? Um, and the U is then uh, phonetic. So this is actually a really good example of the three, three of the major types of writing systems or why they, how they start, right? Sounds like, represents, or sound, um, literally makes a, a sound uh, from that sign rather than rebus. Okay, um, another way, and of course, this is all going to say that writing helps us get a uh, better understanding of what people thought in the past because they're telling us exactly Landscape also, uh, although not as clear as writing, can give us clues into how the past viewed, uh, people in the past viewed their world. Um, we change the world around us to suit our needs, uh, especially in agricultural societies, less so in hunter-gatherer societies, although even hunter-gatherers will, for example, burn down um, a portion of forest or uh, set a grassland on fire because after a fire, young green shoots pop up, and then deer will come out and eat it, and then you can kill the deer. So people, even hunter-gatherers, will take on landscape modification. But, uh, for example, um, the ancient Inca, who are going to meet the end of the semester, which is rapidly approaching, saw their world as uh, having four quarters. And obviously, they are not equal quarters, but there's north, south, east, west. And they divided their, um, their empire really into four, these four parts. And in the capital of Cusco, they had roads that headed out to each one of them, which is kind of interesting. They, um, they thought their empire was you know, the four-cornered world, which is pretty neat. Um, and there's uh, more ramifications or more indications of this quatripartite or four-part um, division of their empire in administrative units, in road, their road system, in uh, even waka, which are 
uh, all I can think is Fonzie Bear Waka Waka. Uh, they're, uh, waka are um, spiritual markers or religious markers along roadways. And they're often lined up to, uh, to these four corners. So certainly a uh, another representation of how they viewed the world on the landscape. Same thing in the American Southwest. Has anyone been to the Southwest, like the Pueblos and stuff? No? Oh. Uh, I hear it's lovely. I haven't been there. Uh, but there are, um, again, lines that are needlessly straight. If you are walking a path, this is not the line you would take. It's not necessarily the flattest or easiest route. Um, and so there's thought to be, well, if they're not making an easy route over you know, overpasses or through valleys and they're needlessly going up really steep hills or whatever, there's probably a social component behind it. Whether or not we can fully understand that is not necessarily clear. Um, this is uh, Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan is just outside of Mexico City. You can actually take the subway there now. Uh, obviously a very planned out city. You can see all the squares um, all align the same direction. This is very tightly spaced. Um, this is a, re a representation of the organization of a state. This is a, probably a, one of the largest, most important pre-Columbian uh, states, state societies that we don't really understand much about. Um, unlike the Maya, where we have their writing, unlike the Aztec, which met the Spanish, um, where, so we have a lot more understanding of them, Teotihuacan existed in about the same location as the Aztecs, around the same area. Um, but they were about contemporaneous with the Maya. And the, one of the few intriguing looks at them that we have is actually from the Maya because they sent over, um, I guess you'd call them emissaries or uh, leaders to the Maya area. And leaders from the Maya area would go here, actually specifically to this city, and undergo uh, rituals uh, to become rulers, which is fascinating. But we don't know what, they don't have a writing system. So all we have are these really well laid out towns and cities with these, or mostly this one, with these extremely square and regular. These are all housing compounds. And so you can see where some have been excavated. These are just the outlines. Um, very complex, clearly uh, well organized civic religious uh, sort of place. A lot of them align with um, celestial movements, so it's thought to have some religious organization like, um, like this from the site of Tzibel Chaltun in Yucatan. Um, the sun rises through the middle of this uh, temple. It's either the solstice or the equinox. And my advisor, whose father worked at this site and did all the mapping, would probably be mad that I can't remember which one it is. Um, today, uh, on either the solstice or the equinox, you see people there uh, in like a lot of new age people in white robes with crystals. And they hold them up in the sunlight that comes through this doorway. Okay. Fun sort of way to uh, travel, I guess. Anyway, um, I've seen no specific evidence of any effication of crystals, which is to say I have no evidence that they do anything. Uh, but people are certainly there, and it's more fun to people watch, frankly, than to look at this. Um, but the idea that ancient people were able to understand not only the solstice or the equinox or... Uh, you know, the path of Venus around the sun or other, um, usually, uh, what do you call it, uh, un, uh, unassisted astronomical observations, uh, tells us that they had a 
pretty complex understanding of time and space um, and measuring these things, right? How uh, the Maya were able to do this because they had a deep understanding. They had a good understanding of math um, and days and counting, uh, more so than perhaps others. Actually, the Maya were the first society that we know of to use the concept of zero. Um, they did it before in the Western world. We got the concept of zero. I say we as my ancestors came from Europe. Uh, we got the concept of zero from the Hindus, actually. And zero is important in place notation. Oops. So, you know, 1900, if we didn't have zeros, we would have no way to convey that that nine means nine one hundreds. And this means one one thousands because we didn't have, you know, the tens or the, or the ones. Um, but the Maya did that in the late B.C. time period, B.C.E. So Maya were actually pretty far advanced mathematically. Uh, interestingly enough, we don't have um, mathematical computations, so we don't know how they were doing math. But we have, they don't show their work. They only show the results, which is kind of frustrating. Okay. Um, another types of uh, representation tell us about power. Um, Power is, like I say, I guess intangible is the best word. Power is only in the social, um, the social, con in the social, you know, hive mind construct, right? Power doesn't exist, right? Uh, Donald Trump is the president, and people do what he says because that is how our society is organized, and his power is largely because of that institution. It, like if, if we didn't allow that, and I'm not just saying this for, I'm not saying Trump specifically, but any president, um, we do what he, up until now, he uh, says because of the in social institution that we all have bought into, or not all of us, but you know, uh, for the most part, all of us. Um, and it's hard to see that archeologically, but it's really important because what, what would compel an otherwise you know, rational corn farmer in the Maya world to spend two months out of his year helping to build a palace for his ruler? There's, you know, uh, maybe there are physical um, things behind it, like uh, you'll be incarcerated if you don't. Your family will be dispossessed. We will put you in slavery, right? All of these things would be reasons to do that. However, um, these are all intangible kind of threats that you have to imagine to get you to do things. Um, and there are other positive things like, oh, I owe it to our ruler because our ruler provides for us or other things, right? Um, one uh, piece of evidence we use in archaeology is coins, obviously. I've talked about how Roman coins, as they spread across the known world in the ancient world, um, can tell us that even though an area wasn't a Roman colony, there was some Roman influence, at least economically, in that area. Chinese coins here that are found uh, pretty far abroad as well because they are accepted currency. Um, it gives us a, a, a way to map the economic power of different organizations, just like dollars today. Um, US dollars are used, uh, it's funny, uh, oil is traded in US dollars across the world. So when everyone's, when we have an economic crisis and our dollar becomes less valuable 
it causes a flux in the oil. You know, like if you have a barrel of oil and it's worth $55, well, if dollars become less valuable, it makes it change. So they're all chained together. And uh, it's really interesting that when, you know, oil prices fluctuate, part of that is due to the dollar fluctuating, which is kind of fun. Um, anyway, the U.S. dollar, international, uh, internationally accepted uh, form of currency. Uh, Belize, you can just use it like dollars in a couple other places in South America. You can just use U.S. dollars because they peg their local currency to the dollar, which is kind of fun uh, for us if we're traveling. They're kind of odd, but that speaks to the, uh, the current socioeconomic power of the United States, where I was going with that kind of long. Um, in the ancient world, we see things like cocoa beans, um, white mantles, which is a ba uh, white piece of cloth, basically a standardized um, type of cloth. Um, even in the colonial time, in, uh, does anyone recognize Point Blanket, the Hudson Bay Point Blanket? These uh, were standardized wool blankets traded by the Hudson Bay Company to uh, fur trappers and traders in um, Canada and northern U.S. And the number of ticks on it or points uh, would tell you how thick and uh, heavy this blanket was. The more ticks you had, the more valuable the blanket. Oops. Uh, palaces are another uh, physical manifestation of uh, power, uh, and as I've mentioned at least three times now, uh, human uh, normal people don't. So this is the palace of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the current president, apparently now for life, <laughs> almost, of Turkey. It's funny, um, this slideshow has been put together with this uh, particular picture for uh, three years. So Recep Tayyip Erdogan, just in the news today, through complete happenstance, um, granted himself or passed a referendum that gave him a grant, uh, great powers in Turkey. He's the president of Turkey. Uh, and this is his palace that was built three years ago. Obviously, he, in addition to running the country, didn't have time to build this himself. He had his minions or uh, people paid by the government or whatever to build this palace. Uh, same throughout history. When we see buildings this big, we know that there's power behind it. Oh, now we'll talk about everyone's favorite topic, religion, uh, which you know, you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. Uh, but in anthropology, we see, uh, or archaeology specifically, we're going to look for actions because actions are about the only thing we can see um, unless we have, or actions and also uh, any other um, fig usually figural or graphic representations that are religious. Um, but actions or conduct indicating a belief in, reverence for, and desire to please a divine power. I guess you could also say to avoid uh, divine wrath is also kind of a big one. Action or conduct indicating belief in or reverence for and desire to please a divine ruling power. Um, so we don't know when the idea of religion started. And it wouldn't have been an idea of religion. It wouldn't have been like a noun. Like, oh, that person is religious, or this is a religious idea. It would have just been thoughts or ideas. Um, religion was so embedded in basically every society since we have records of them having beliefs and thoughts like this. Um, 
we first start seeing, let's see, what would be the earliest evidence? I have it written down. No, the earliest real archaeological evidence are figurines and things like that that survived down to us, and those are 26,000 years old. But it's certain that there were religious beliefs before that. For example, uh, hunter-gatherers in Siberia still, or they're reindeer herders, they throw um, a shot of vodka into the fire every night when they light it to the fire god. Well, there's no evidence of that archaeologically, uh, but how long does that religion go back? How long do you think people have had a fire god? Well, people have had fire for mm, 700,000 to a million years. So a fire god probably may even precede that because there would have been fire from thunder strikes that uh, burned down the house, you know, burned down the savanna and killed your grandpa because the fire god was mad. Who knows, right? Uh, it's really impossible to say when the idea of religion started, um, but it's been pervasive and present in pretty much every society since um, since we know of. Uh, did anyone read the Piazza article? I've been uh, kind of lax in quizzing you on the articles. Um, it's a good article. In short, um, the researchers did a test. And what they did was they took children um, and put them in rooms individually. And they said, here's a plate of cookies. Don't touch the cookies. And you get cookies when this is all done. But you can't touch the cookies now. Don't touch the cookies now. And the kids would say, OK. And they, the adult would leave the room. And they had three tests, or they had three groups of kids. One, they just left the room. They'd say, don't eat the cookies. You get some later. And they'd leave. The next one, they'd say, don't touch the cookies. That doll that's sitting up on a shelf, like an elf on the shelf or something like that, is watching you. Don't take the cookies. And they'd leave. And then the third group would say, you see that empty shelf? There's an invisible doll up there watching you. Don't take the cookies or they'll tell us. And they'd leave. And so there were three groups. And which two groups do you think did the best? Well, the one with the elf and the one without the elf. But they said there was an invisible elf. And the people or the kids who, weren't, who were told just not to do it ate more cookies. So uh, the idea is that whether or not there is a physical entity that is any type of deity in the universe is not for us as anthropologists to say. Um, that is not what we're about. That's theology. What we are interested in is how that affects society. And one thing that religion does that is really beneficial to society, and I know we can debate whether religion is a pro or a con, and there are pros and cons. Even people who are religious and belong to a religion will say, yeah, not everything is perfect. Okay, maybe. I don't know. Maybe in a cult, oh, everything's perfect. The leader is always right. Um, but one major advantage is if you think that there's an uh, invisible being or force watching you, you are less likely to cheat on your neighbors. And by cheat on your neighbors, I mean like take some of their food, uh, take some of their animals, uh, or lie, cheat, steal. You know, do all those bad things. And so one of the suggestions is, if, let's say, we have two groups, and they're living side by side, and one is religious, and one is not religious, the religious people will perhaps do better because they have a system, a social system, policed by an, an invisible doll in the Piazza article, and the non-religious group isn't. 
And of course, people talk, you know, say, oh, atheists are all amoral whatevers. Well, that's not true anymore. Uh, but in this made-up scenario, we would potentially have people who had no, you know, uh, no, they might say don't steal, but then if no one's watching you, why wouldn't you, right? So there is a selective pressure that this group would more likely thrive, and this group might fall apart because the non-religious group might fall apart because there's no police watching the hen, you know, no uh, shepherds watching the sheep. So that's kind of fun. Um, interesting idea uh, as to why, and I don't mean to say that if you're a religious person, I don't mean to uh, undermine or belittle uh, other parts of religion, but if we're looking for an evolutionary reason why it's so prevalent, it might be that the non-religious groups were kind of uh, disadvantaged. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm just going to skip through here. Um, yeah, I just want to make sure we stay. I'm going to stop here in a minute. Um, so some correlates of religion are focused attention. So these are things that one uh, worships or focuses on, and they can be huge, like Mecca, right? Um, or a kami gate in Japan. These gates, um, you've probably seen them in ads for Japan. I don't know why you see ads for Japan. But uh, these represent a place that has spiritual significance. Um, that's similar to a waka in uh, ancient Peru. So, uh, it doesn't have to be a big uh, temple like this one at Palenque, where the top, uh, so it represents a mountain, and the worship at the top then is closer to the sky deities. Um, it doesn't have to be like that. It uh, certainly could be a shrine at home, and shrines at home are pretty obvious, and you might not think of yourself as having something as fancy as a shrine, but even a picture of, say, Jesus or a cross, or perhaps um, even a set of books on your religion or whatever could be considered by an anthropologist to be a, a shrine, somewhere where you think about or interact with your deity. Uh, in the Maya case, we know what they were doing because they told us, obviously, clearly, right? Um, boundaries are a big uh, archaeological correlate we can see because, remember, uh, a couple days ago I talked about palaces and how they often have restricted entrance. You can't just go walking into the White House. You can't just go walking into uh, different uh, important buildings. Uh, same thing with, uh, oftentimes with religion. So this is the uh, this is the precursor to the uh, temple in Jerusalem. This is like the portable traveling uh, temple of the Jews uh, as they wandered through the desert, as described in is it Deuteronomy? I don't remember. Um, but there is a fence around the whole thing, and then there is an actual like building um, where preliminary um, procedures happen, and then there's the Holy of Holies, where uh, the divine presence itself is supposed to be. And the high priest could converse with said holy presence, and one would go through uh, the fence, through the holy place, to the Holy of Holies. So you have to go through three gates, basically, to get there. And this sort of separation, I'm not bringing this up 
as an endorsement of this type of religious practice. I'm just showing it's a nice example of barriers or separations between uh, our world um, and the next. The Maya had a beautiful example of this, if I'm right. Yes. On this plate, which is really hard to see, so I will pull out a drawing. They show the... So this is kind of a, a Maya cosmogram. This shows the entire Maya universe. And basically you have uh, Chak, the rain god, um, as an intermediary between the underworld, which, so these little stones piled up, that means water. And so this is a water, and this says knob, which is like lake. So you have, under here, this is all underwater in the underworld called Shabalba. And when most people die, they go to the underworld. It's watery, it's wet, it's dank. It's not super fun. And Chak, as the rain deity, obviously has to do with both the sky, where clouds uh, drop rain down, and the underworld, which is you know a wet, watery place. And so Chak, as the rain god, is that intermediary between the places. And that's why for the Maya, things like caves were really a big deal because that's where it was a liminal space. It was stepping from our world into the underworld. Um, and that's why the world trees that hold up the sky would have been important uh, places had, they, had we had evidence that they actually existed. One could potentially climb up into the celestial world, which is another one. So I should say worlds. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Just looking for a good stopping spot. Okay, we'll stop it. Well, we're going to have to stop here. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.